If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. These last two sermons, we've taken a step out of Ephesians, and we're looking at the topic of God's sovereignty in election. Here's what we read in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Father, I pray that you would open up the rest of the 
this chapter of, of Romans, Romans chapter 9 and 10 and 11, Father, that you would open it up to us so that we can see what you're like, so we can see how secure your promises are. Pray, the, Father, that uh, this word would be appointed to every soul, that it would accomplish the purpose you sent for it. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You've probably heard me say this many times, but growing up as a child, I was plagued with fear and worry about potential terrible things or circumstances that could happen. I could just naturally imagine terrible thoughts. I remember the first funeral I went to, the, the lady in our church in her 80s who'd passed away, and I saw her body laying in the casket, and I just saw my parents. It hit me as though this could be my mom or dad. Any minute, any day, this could be my parents. I remember when they would leave on vacation, and I'd watch their car drive away, and I would think in my mind, get one last look, because that might be the last time you ever see your mom or dad, or I'd hear my parents talking about someone who had cancer, and immediately I thought, well, I got cancer. I'd hear, I remember my mom listening to a show on Oprah about a a child that got strep throat and died, and then I thought, this could be me. Terrifying. Worst case scenarios, living my life in, in really what, what uh, they would call, I, I would probably be diagnosed with, uh, oh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank right now. You can help me. I would flip the light. I would flip the light on and off a certain number of times so that bad things wouldn't happen. Obsessive compulsive. That's, that's what I'd be diagnosed as. I would make up these things that I would do. My biggest fear was my dad dying. And his high school basketball number was 33. So every night I'd look over the edge of my bed 33 times. Because if I didn't, I was afraid he would die of a heart attack. And that was a prison that I lived in. And part of the reason I lived in this prison is because I did not know who God was. And the Bible describes what I was doing as sinful worry. It's the opposite of Faith. And it wasn't until I ran into the sovereign God that I was released from this slavery to worry. Romans 8.28 that we just read says that all things work together for good, the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. 
And then he describes that good as being conformed into the image of Christ. The good God has in mind is not easy circumstances. It's that God loves me so that whatever comes my way is working for my good. On the good days, when I get what I want, and on the days that are the most difficult, if God is good and he is sovereign and my worst case scenario day comes true, I get that phone call. If I know that God is sovereign and working my good on that day, then I can be let out of the prison. Sometimes we get to the sovereignty of God and it just becomes this controversial thing. And someone, I've been asked before, why do you care? What's the big deal? It just causes controversy. I'll tell you why I care. Because I've been set free from a prison as I was able to believe in God the size he is in the scripture. As I saw who he was, I saw he was good. I saw he was sovereign over everything. Then I can rest that all my days were written in a book before there was one of them. That I can't add to it. Jesus said, worrying, you, you can't add a single hour, a, a single hour to your life. It does, it does no good. In fact, worry is always attached to control and Worry and control adds up to pride. When we start thinking we can control only what God can control, we put ourselves in his shoes, and then we can't live under the weight of that. There's only one God that controls circumstances. And it's not us. And as long as we try to control things, we will worry, and that worry will put us into a prison in unbelief will rise up. All that is intro to say this. This is not just merely an intellectual exercise that isn't practical to our lives. And, and so as we begin, we're going to spend most of our time in Romans 9 and 11 today, but it's not fair to hand out in the notes uh, questions uh, without actually touching on them specifically. So at the beginning here, I want to say a little bit about every one of those uh, common objections to the doctrine of God's divine election. Divine election is God of his own will choosing some sinners unto salvation so that he gives them spiritual life that they come to trust in him and, and therefore experience eternal life uh, with him. So let's begin by looking at the first question. It seems unjust that God would choose to save some people and not others, especially if they're unable to come to him. So where I get the idea of unable to come to him, John, I'll give you a couple examples. In John 6.44... Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. 
They're unable. No one can come to me, Jesus says. Our 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the question goes like this. If a person who's by nature a son of disobedience, like we looked at last week, by nature uh, children of wrath, if they're unable to come to him, how can God be just in saving some and not all of them? And one thing we would add is, what we looked at last week is man is fallen. If God sent everyone to hell, he wouldn't do something bad. Everyone would have just received justice for God, from God. So what type of inability is it? That's the key. Uh, The illustration that John Piper gives here is if that not able to come to him or unable to understand spiritual things, if it's like a man who's tied to a chair and someone comes up with a gun and says, get out of the chair or I'll shoot you. And the person tries to get out of the chair and they try to struggle and they can't do it, so he shoots them. He said, if that's the type of inability it is, then God would be unjust in that situation. Because we weren't able to come to him. But if a person is sitting in a chair, a nice comfy chair, and their arch enemy walks up and says, get up out of the chair. And they look at the one in whom they hate and they say, no. And he says, get up out of the chair. I have authority over your life. You'll die if you don't get out of the chair. And they say, no. If it's that type of inability, then it's a moral inability, not a, merely a, a physical or mental inability. I'll give you an example. In Genesis 37, 3, uh, here's what we read. This is right after Joseph gets his coat of many colors. It says, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his own age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and they are and could not speak peaceably to him. They could not. They were not able to speak peaceably about him. Was it because their mouth didn't work? No, it's because they hated him that they could not speak a word against him. And so someone that makes an objection and says it's not fair, they're not able to come to him, this would be the non-elect, God's justice is called into question here. They're not able to come to him. The way we would respond is their inability is a moral inability, not a physical or a mental inability. It would be no different than a a murderer who 
murdered a family and then went before the judge and the judge says, what do you have to say for yourself? And, and the one who committed the murders, the killer says, well, judge, I'm really the victim here because you see, I'm evil and I couldn't not kill that family because I am bound by my moral nature of evil. And now if the judge says, you know what? He wasn't unable to do that. We would all kick and scream and we would say, that's unjust because we know that moral inability is not an excuse. It, it, it should not be excused uh, by the holy and pure God. All right? And we'll come back to God's justice uh, later, uh, speak more to that question. Why didn't God choose to save everyone? All right, we're coming back to that one in a few minutes uh, when we get in Romans 9. Question three, how is God's sovereignty compatible with man's free will? Am I just a robot? So we looked at Isaiah 46 that said, God declares the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end, even the little things. And, he, and in Isaiah 46, he even says the doings, that, that God is sovereign over everything that will be done, which means human choices. And so the question is, if God is sovereign over every human choice, how can a man really have a will and not just merely be a robot? Well, this is a question that Jean-Paul Sartre thought of, the French philosopher, uh, in the, probably the greatest atheistic French, or philosopher in the, in the 20th century. Uh, he was thinking about what it meant to be uh, human. What, what does it mean uh, to be a person? And his teacher that trained him was Edmund Husserl. And what Edmund Husserl said is that human beings have the ability to act with intentionality. To conceive of a purpose and make choices and decisions with intent uh, uh, for that purpose to pass. So central to our humanity is that we make choices. This is what Husserl said. So then one of his disciples, Jean-Paul Sartre, comes along, and here's how he reasons that there is no God. He says, if man is truly free, and he is, he looks at himself, he says, I make choices. I pick this up, I set this down. If, if man is truly free, then God cannot exist. And if God is truly, uh, or, and if God is sovereign, or if God has total freedom, then man can't have any. So Sartre says it has to be one or the other. Both can't exist at the same time. They, the, he said it's a contradiction. So the way he proved there was no God is the fact that we have human choice. And if we have human choice, then God can't have human choice. They uh, so that's the nature of the question. 
But Sartre defined freedom this way. He described freedom as autonomy. For there to be true freedom, you have to be totally autonomous. And so in that sense, Sartre was right. You can't have an autonomous free will chooser and a God. Because the nature of God is that he's in authority over his creation. But what Sartre got wrong is, that's not the only way you can define freedom, and that's not the way God defined freedom. In, in fact, we read Genesis 2, and what we see is God made a beautiful garden and all sorts of trees uh, for Adam and Eve to eat from. And he says, go eat from any tree of the garden. There's human freedom there. Go eat. Pick whatever tree you want to eat from, except for one. Don't eat the, from the tree in the midst of the garden. If you eat of it, you'll surely die. And that's the type of freedom the Bible gives us. It's a real freedom. We really make choices. We're really not robots, but we're not autonomous. We will give an account to God. God has authority over our life. And so here's what R.C. Sproul says. He says, they're really, this is not a contradiction. What you have is a supreme being, a supreme one who makes choices, and you have human beings who make choices. And the difference between the two is one's supreme and one isn't, but they absolutely can coexist together. Now, this human being is told by God that his ways are higher than our ways, as high as the heavens are above the earth are his ways higher than our ways. So it's no surprise that we can't understand every last question about how God does what he does, but we can understand how a supreme being and a human being can exist at the same time. Um, last week, so question four, isn't God's election based on his foreknowledge of who would believe? Uh, we took that head on last, last week. Uh, so the Arminian view, the, the view that challenges God's divine election says, well, God just looks and sees who will believe and that's who he elects. And we saw uh, the, the problem with that is this word foreknowledge means intimate love. So those whom God intimately loves, set his intimate love on beforehand, uh, are the ones he elected. So it's not just him knowing its affection. The way we read it in Ephesians 1 is, uh, in love, God predestined or, or God chose us. And, and that's the formula. God set his special love like I have for my wife. It's a, it's a special type of love. God did that for his elect. And, and if you weren't here last week, you can go. We kind of work through um, Old Testament passages. Amos 3.2 says, You only have I known from all the families of the earth. Therefore, I'll punish you for all your iniquities. He's speaking to Israel. He says, you only have I known 
It, it's not that he didn't know other families. What he's saying is, you only have I set my intimate love on Israel. All right? So we, we, we dealt with that one quite a bit last week. And this would go contrary to Ephesians 1 that says his choice isn't according to what he sees us doing, it's, but, but rather it's according to the purpose of his own will, to the glory of his own grace. The emphasis is on the choice uh, that God has. All right? And then... Um, I'll just, I'll, I'll give one example to that one. Acts 13, 48. You can go look at this. Uh, but when Paul was, Paul and Barnabas were preaching, we read in Acts 13, 48, it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So who of the Gentiles believed? Those who were appointed to eternal life. And Ephesians tells us that happened before the foundation of the world. All right? And then the fifth question there, if God is chosen who will be saved, then why should anyone risk their life seeking to share the gospel of Christ with the lost? If, if it's all going to happen anyways, why do evangelism? Why become a missionary? The, the first answer to that is because God told you to. He called you ambassadors. He told you to go to the nations and make disciples of the nations, to go to the ends of the earth. So first of all, you do it because God told you to do it. And by the way, if we're not the center of the universe, we can still do something, don't you think? <laughs> if God uses us as a tool to speak his word so that his elect come to uh, faith. We don't have to be the center of the universe, do we? And, and the second thing is Paul just thought the exact opposite of that question. In 2 Timothy 2.8, uh, you can look at this. 2 Timothy 2.8, uh, Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, so he's suffering for preaching this, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul just thinks the opposite of that question. I take all my beatings preaching the gospel for the sake of the elect because some are going to believe. And then I'd maybe point to 1 Corinthians 3, 5, uh, this passage where Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. But God gave the growth. You are not called to go to the ends of the earth to save somebody. You're to plant, you're to water, God gives the growth. God's the Savior. God's the Savior. God's the one that can take a spiritually dead person and bring them to life. 
So I know that was a lot and fast, So, but let's jump into Romans 9 uh, to conclude this morning. What I want, the reason why I started in Romans 8 during scripture reading is here's what, I, here's what Paul's doing. Paul makes an, an incredible statement. All things are going to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Someone could say, yeah, how can that be? How can that be? And then here's what he says. He, if this is a big tower, here's the illustration Piper gives that I think is helpful. He lives downtown Minneapolis, these skyscrapers. He says before a skyscraper goes up, they have to dig deep depending on how high it is because you have to lay the foundation. And that's a big promise. That's a tall skyscraper. What's the foundation of that promise? This. Those whom he foreknew set his love on ahead of time. Before you were born, he also predestined. <laughs> his argument's really good. The way you can know it's gonna, everything's going to work together for good is because God started working for your good before you ever existed as a human being. That's how you can know. You think he started to try to set his love on you before the foundation of the earth, and now he's going to fail in bringing it about? But rather, he's going to use and ordain every circumstance in your life to conform you into the image of Christ. That's why Christians suffer so much. We're so unlike Christ that if God's going to do the good work of conforming us to his image, we would not expect him to give us all of our idolatrous wants and, and desires. And so you get the end of Romans 8, this beautiful passage of our security in Christ. But then here's what the reality is. Israel's not believing. The majority of Israel is not believing. Gentiles are believing, but is, the majority of Israel is not believing, and God gave his promises to Israel. Didn't he? So that's what precipitates Romans 9. And we'll have to move fast here. He says, I'm speaking in the truth in Christ. I'm speaking truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, that means damned, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God blessed forever. Amen. And so, we get to the question and the problem that he seeks to answer over the next three chapters. It's, it's in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. See, someone could say, God made these promises to Israel, but Israel rejected their Messiah. At least the great majority did. So it looks like God's promises have failed. All right, we got to get this question locked into our mind because the whole next three chapters are, are talking about this. Has God's word failed since so many Israelites 
are not trusting in Christ. Here's how he answers that. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Think about that. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. You got that? So he says, don't just think of Israel as those who are in the physical line of Abraham. Not all Israel is Israel. And they are not marked off just because they're, they're ethnically Israel. They're in the line of Abraham. But, do it this way, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Well, what is he getting at here? Because you have Sarah and Abraham, and Abraham had Ishmael with Hagar and had Isaac with Sarah, all right? So here's what he says. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. We have a clue here. They're counted as offspring. They're counted as offspring, and what determines it is whether they're children of the promise or not. Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, they had a plan that was of the flesh, but God gave a promise to Sarah. And he's saying it's through the promise, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, someone might say, well, Hagar was an Egyptian slave, so maybe that's why it didn't run through Ishmael. But he sharpens his argument here. Uh, he says, for, for this is what the promise said, at this time next year I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but Rebekah, this is Isaac's wife, here's, here's where he sharpens it, but Rebekah had conceived children by the one man, our forefather Isaac. So now you have an Israelite Isaac and an Israelite wife, Rebekah, and now it's like, okay, their whole line is going to be the people of God. But, but what does he say? Rebekah had conceived children by the one man Isaac, our father, though they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who, uh, who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. He's actually speaking really clear. Now, it's difficult to hear maybe, but clarity is not a problem here. in order that God's purpose and election might continue. So, before they were born, they hadn't done anything good or evil. This is not look, God looking down through the corridor of time to elect who would believe in him. This is the opposite of that. It's the text that takes on that false belief. 
And notice what Paul juxtaposes. He says, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Usually Paul says, not works, but faith, right? And he contrasts the difference between a, someone striving to be saved by their own righteousness, their own works, and faith. But here he contrasts works with calling, which is pointing to our faith is determined by his foreknowing, his predestining, his calling. Then our faith comes in. And, and, and he's contrasting the difference between God's choice, God's promise in works. And this is emphasizing what Ephesians 1 emphasizes, that it's according to his own choice, right? 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul says it th this way, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, so there we see it again, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 2 Timothy 1.9. The Bible is crystal clear that anyone's salvation has its first cause being in the purpose of God, God's choice and, and God's grace. She was told, the older shall serve the younger, just as is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now, you can read all sorts of commentaries that try to make it say, Jacob I loved and Esau I loved less. <laughs> this idea that tries to lessen the blow. Like, God hated him <laughs> before he had done anything good or bad. But the problem is, is he's quoting Malachi 1, verse 2. And when we go there, is this God just loving Esau less? Or is this God actively judging Esau? Here's what it says. In verse, verse 2, Malachi 1-2. I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Now, or, or, but Esau I have hated. Now, now, what does he say after that? I have laid waste his hill country and left his her heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, uh, but we'll be rebuild the ruins, the Lord says they may build, but I'll tear down. They may be called a wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is very angry. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So he says, God chose before they were born. God sent the promise through Isaac. And through Isaac, it's not through Esau, but it's through Jacob. And why is he saying this? Has the word of God failed? He, he's building the argument, no. God's children are according to God's promise, not just being born into it, all right? Verse 14, what shall we say then? 
Paul knows what you and I are going to struggle with. Remember when I told you that I, I rebelled against this doctrine for three months, I barely slept, and finally God pinned me. <laughs> and where he pinned me is right here. Because every uh, thought I wanted to argue back against God, Paul knew what thought was going to come out of my heart, and then he took that argument and he pinned me down. And this is one of those questions. What then is there injustice on God's part? That's one of our questions. Here's what God says, by no means. God has never done an unjust thing. And this was not unjust either. I want to point out here that one of the main arguments for the Arminian view, the opposite view, says that God elects based on foreknowing who would believe. They're saying that's what Paul's teaching, but if that's true, Paul doesn't make any sense here. Because no one would say, if God looks forward and sees who's going to believe, he would never say, oh, that's unjust. But he assumes this question because Paul means what he says he means. Election is based on his own choice, not the works of man that God sees, right? So, the, so therefore, the question itself tells us that foreknowledge can't be the answer. What then is there injustice on God's part? By no means. God, take comfort in this. Whatever mystery you're left with, you could know that God never does an unjust thing. There's no injustice, injustice with God. And then in verse 15, here's his answer. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is God saying, you can either pick this Bible up and read it in all the ways you want to read it so it makes you feel good, or you can pick this Bible up and say, I'm going to get under this word, and if this Bible puts a God in front of me that makes me squirm a little bit, I'm, he's worthy to be worshipped. And this is God saying, I'm God. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And we run into God at that point. We run into God here. And then he's just so clear, verse 16. So it depends not on human will. You don't become a child of God by human will or exertion, fundamentally, but on God who has mercy. If you're saved, young people, children, if you're trusting in Jesus, here's what you have to know. You're not smarter than the other kids that don't believe in Jesus. God has had mercy on you. You believe because God gave you eyes to understand 
and believe. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This doesn't mean a person doesn't need to trust in Christ or come to Christ. You do, but you won't unless the new birth is given to you, unless the lights are turned on. We're talking about what's the cause, what's the, what's the direct cause of the people of God and those who aren't. And then he says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh is God's enemy in a high position in this land. And God says, yep, I raised you up. Those circumstances in your life that led you to that high position, that's for my glory. And then he says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Once again, God didn't harden a bunch of people that are trying to get out of the chair. <laughs> he hardened haters of God. That's what we looked at last week. <laughs> Romans 3, 9 through 19. If you want to know who man is, they're not seeking for God. They're not looking for God. They're haters of God. They're rebels to God. And God hardened Pharaoh. He didn't give him eyes to see. He gave him justice. He gave him what he deserves. He gave him what all of us deserve. That's what he gave Pharaoh. And then he says, once again, he knows my question. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? <laughs> why does he find fault if it's God's will to raise him up and that he wouldn't believe so that he could show his power? It's a good question, right? Here's where I'd make a defense of, well, we're all sinners. We all deserve hell. Here's what Paul says. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? See, he's dealing with man that is rising too high, and he's putting God in the dock. Man's questioning God's rights at this point. He says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Does the potter have the right to make whatever he wants? Make a toilet out of this clay pot? and make something really special uh, and, and, and some, something someone will really treasure out of this pot? Does he have the right to do that? Does the molder have the right over the clay? And then he says in verse 22, and this is hitting right at the head of the question, why didn't God choose to save everyone? Question two in your notes. Look at verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured, been patient, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, or to make known 
the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. What if God says, I'm going to put all my attributes on display. I'm going to give justice to some. I'm going to give them what they deserve. And I'm going to give mercy to others. Because if I gave mercy to everyone, these, 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 these ones that are glorifying for my mercy won't know what mercy is if some don't get what they deserve. And if God is God-centered, which he is, if the best thing God can do for any of us is, is to put his attributes on display, then God can give some justice and some mercy. And the reason why he doesn't is so the vessels of mercy will be in absolute awe that they didn't deserve it. And they got it. And how many vessels of mercy then stand up and say, he should have saved all of them. You see how backwards that thinking is? The ones that are meant to see that they are chosen by grace and glorify him for grace then begin to judge God that he should have used his mercy different. But only if man is the center of the universe would man be owed mercy. And if you're owed mercy, then it's not really mercy. And if you're owed grace, it's not really grace. So let's just read. Don't have a lot of time make many more comments. Let's just read this out. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people... Well, before we do that, I want to say one thing. So some people say... Paul is just saying, what if he decided to do this? You know, it doesn't say that he prepared some uh, for destruction and some uh, for uh, election to be saved. And, and I must say here, the Bible speaks of electing a person unto salvation in, in a way that he doesn't talk about uh, giving justice to those who deserve it. This is highlighted in love. God did this and, and he goes out of his way to say it's his good purpose and, and pleasure. But some say it's just hypothetical. Here's the, here's the problem with that interpretation. He just did it with Jacob and Esau. He just did it with Jacob and Esau. It's, it's not what if he did this. He just told us he did it and then he's arguing uh, from uh, that point. So, okay, verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I'll call my people, and her who is not beloved I'll call beloved. And the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they'll be called sons of the living God. And he's speaking to the Gentiles here. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel has been as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. As I, Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and, and become like Gomorrah. So if God just left them to their own will, 
there would be no sons in Israel. Paul would not be a Jew that's believing. All right? Then we get to Romans 10. We don't have time. This, this is where an Arminian loves us because it says, those who confess with their mouth and believe in their heart will be saved. That's true. If you'll come to Christ, if you'll believe in him, you'll be saved. Mercy is, and grace is offered to any sinner who will confess their sins and cling to Christ. That's true. But then at the end of chapter 10, but why didn't they believe? Chapter 10 says you need to believe. You need a preacher if someone's going to believe. But why didn't they believe? See, you get back. It's, it's like last week with, with Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you need to be born of the Spirit is the first part of John 3. The middle part is what? Whosoever comes to him may be saved. The third part is, here's what happened. People loved the darkness and hated the light. They didn't come to him. But then who came to him? Those who, to be shown that their good works were wrought in God. So you have God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty in human decision in the middle which we need to make. We need to choose Christ. But if you choose Christ, you need to see that this is the work of God on display. We are His workmanship. Okay, turn to Romans 11. I'm just going to read a few verses here. You, you can read the rest of this at home. Verse 11, Romans 11, 1. I ask then, has God rejected His people? Because they didn't all believe. Has God rejected his people? For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, whom he set his love on beforehand. He has not rejected them. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets and have demolished your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed knee to Baal. It doesn't say there's 7,000 men who kept themselves. It says God has kept for himself 7,000 men, right? And then he says, so too, verse 5, at the present time there is a remnant a small group within a bigger group, a, a remnant chosen by grace. And if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it is seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And then uh, I think we'll stop there. So that's, those are the chapters that pinned me down and I said, okay, God, <laughs> you got to be a God that is not created in my own image with me at the center, with me deciding what I think is right. If God is God, then we have to admit he has a right over his creation. Even if I can't comprehend it all, the Bible tells me he's good. 
The Bible tells me he's just. The Bible tells me his act of electing people is in love. And I just believe that. I don't have all the answers for all your questions. <laughs> but those are things that I think the Bible makes clear. And that's the strong tower that gives me comfort. Because if my salvation is based on my decisions and my willing and my effort, I'll leave him. But if my faith is because the Holy Spirit gave me spiritual birth, then I know there is no spiritual stillbirth. That although my walk with God might be like this, I'll keep the faith, I'll keep repenting, I'll keep clinging to Christ. Why? Because I've been given spiritual life from God. The only thing I can point to is mercy and grace. You can know your elect if you'll have him. Will you have Christ? If you'll have Christ, you're an odd person in this world because most people look at the grace of God, stiff arm it, and say no. No. 